0: 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, give ear to the word of God. Paul says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from, uh, from all, from them all, the Lord rescued me indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived This ends the reading of God's word you may be seated well, The grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever Amen Well if you were here last if you were here last Lord's Day We looked mainly at verses 6 through 9. I think we read verses 1 through 9. But in in that passage, Paul went into some small detail about the ungodliness and the ungodly methods of the false teachers that were seeking to infiltrate the church. He paints in those brief verses there a picture of their depravity, their hypocrisy, uh, which in some ways you could say Paul is summarizing for us back in verse 5 when he says of them, that they, quote, that they have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. In some ways, everything that he says after that in verses 6 through 9 is kind of an explanation or expansion on that on that phrase. So, as always, false prophets, false teachers, what do they do? They present themselves as teachers of God's flock. But what Paul tells us here in our text and the previous verses is that both their message as well as their lifestyle, their character, their doctrine, as well as their practice, contradict that claim. The things they teach, the way they live, contradict the claim to be teachers of God's flock in every way. Uh, Paul says back in verse 4, they were were not lovers of God or of his flock. In verse 2, he says they are lovers of self and lovers of money. Verse 4, he says they are lovers of what? Pleasure rather than lovers of God. And yet, you know, you would think that that would be enough to keep people from following after them. But uh, despite all of that, many seemed very eager to follow such teachers. As Paul says later in chapter four, some have itching ears and they heap up for themselves teachers to suit their own lusts. Well, when we come to our text this morning in verses 10 to 13, Paul paints a very vivid contrast for us between himself and those false teachers and their lifestyles. In verse 10, He starts by saying to Timothy in the ESV, it says, you, however, so he he starts talking about the false teachers and he says, no, but but as for you, it's not that way. You, however, uh, he says this actually a few times in chapters three and four in verse 14 of chapter three. He tells Timothy again, it's almost the same exact phrase in the Greek. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it. And as we see in our text, where where did he learn it from? Mainly Paul himself. And then again in chapter 4, verse 5, he says again, As for you, to Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So you could say that in doing this and saying it this way, Paul is not only contrasting himself with the false teachers that were around But Timothy as well, he's reminding Timothy, this is not how you were taught. This is not how you learned life and ministry. And so he is to persevere despite whatever sufferings and persecutions may come his way. And Paul says, in some ways, they are going to come his way as he is ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ and living in a way that pleases God. So I want to look at three things this morning from our text. And the first of those things that Paul points us to is the example of Paul himself. Paul points us to himself as an example, as his own example of life and of ministry and of enduring the persecution of the wicked because of it. That's what Paul reminds Timothy of in brief order. In verses 10 to 11, he says this. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my way of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. And then he adds, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now when he says, you however have followed, the word followed there, he's not just saying, although it includes this, he's not just saying, hey Timothy, you're well aware of these things. He was well aware of these things, but it's more than that. He's saying, you've been following me in all these things. So in a way, Paul's not just saying, hey, this is true of me. He's saying in some ways, these things are also true of Timothy because Timothy had been following along in Paul's footsteps and following along in the ministry with him. Paul had taught Timothy the gospel. He had been built up uh, in the faith and in ministry under Paul's watchful care And so he's saying, you follow these things, you've actually been doing the same things. So it's more than just being well aware of those things. It's a fact that Timothy was a follower of Paul, both in his doctrine as well as in his way of life. So Timothy saw these things that Paul mentions firsthand. Paul didn't need to prove these things to Timothy. He knew Timothy was well aware of them. He was learning to follow Paul in these things as well, even as Paul himself was following Jesus Christ. Now, first, Timothy followed Paul's teaching or his doctrine. It's the first thing that Paul mentions. He says, you, have, you however, have followed my teaching. That can also be translated as doctrine. Uh, earlier in the letter, Paul said something like this. Uh, back in ver- chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he counsels Timothy, admonishes him, and says, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Uh, in, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul reminds him in the opening chapter that the pattern of sound words that he had taught to him, what does he want him to do? To keep following it, to guard the good deposit, to not let it go to waste, to not let it be uh, stolen or, or warped or any such thing. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 very similar in the same the same book he says to him uh, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also so Timothy was to hold to the truth Timothy as a as a minister of the gospel was to pass these things on to others who would in turn pass them on to others and teach them to others as well and notice Paul says what you've heard from me how In the presence of many witnesses. You know, we looked last last Lord's Day at the false teachers, their methods, and what did they do? They snuck around from house to house. When the men weren't home, they went and snuck in and kind of infiltrated the homes and households and led, uh, what it says, weak women astray. Paul says, no. Paul says, the things you've heard me teach in public, in front of everyone's eyes and ears, these are the things you are to hold to, to teach, and to pass on. The ministers of the gospel must always do all things out in the open, and this is no less true for Timothy as it was for Paul. So Timothy had been following Paul's doctrine and then teaching it himself and equipping other men to do the same. Timothy also followed Paul's life as well. He had learned not just from Paul's words, but from Paul's example, Paul's actions, Paul's way of life. And that's the way it's supposed to be, isn't it? It's got to be both. You know, a minister of the gospel must minister in his words as well as in how he he lives. Doctrine and life must correspond and not contradict. In some ways, you could say the day-to-day life of a minister and every believer in Christ really is every bit as important as the doctrine that he teaches and preaches. You can teach the right doctrine until you're blue in the face, but if your life contradicts it, it undoes the good that it would do otherwise. In a way, it tells your hearers that you're not really believing what you're saying anyway if you don't practice what you preach. No wonder Paul tells us back in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Like keep, Maintain these things. Keep an eye on these things. What does that imply? It means if you don't, really what is, what is bound to happen To both life and doctrine. It's going to slip. It's going to to change in some way for the worse. He says watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I don't think any of us really think much. We think about the words, your doctrine, we don't think about the effect of our lives on those we bear witness to. That goes for a pastor as well as any, any, really any Christian at all. If you are seeking to bear witness for the gospel, and I hope that you are with your neighbors, your friends, your family members, uh, watch your life as well as your doctrine. You can undo your testimony by how you live. You can undo the words that you said. Now, if you think about it, that's probably why the vast majority of the biblical qualifications for elder or pastor – involve a life of blamelessness and godliness and not just an ability to teach you'd almost get the impression these days that we'd make the the qualifications just be one thing able to teach it's one of them but the rest of that list in 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 first timothy chapter three verses one through seven it's all about being blameless it's all about godly character and conduct now, Paul's listing of these graces and sufferings of his own might rub you the wrong way. When I was reading it, maybe you were thinking to yourself, man, Paul sure is talking about himself. I see a lot of me, me, my, 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 you know, check check me out kind of thing. As if he were bragging or as if Paul had a really high opinion of himself. But is that really what he's doing? Is Paul bragging? It's a weird thing to brag about. I don't, how many of you have ever bragged? You know, we, we don't. We Christians, we humble brag, right? We kind of make it a more subtle way of bragging. Um, I don't know if, any of, if anyone in this room has bragged about these things, about your, your, your conduct and all these things, but certainly not about your sufferings for the gospel. It's a weird way to brag if that's the way that you're going to brag. The same, this is the same Paul who in 1 Timothy one fifteen said this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am, what? Chief, Chief or foremost. In other words, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the worst one. I'm the worst one he ever saved. In fact, if you read the rest of that passage, he basically says he saved me to make an example out of me. You know, Usually you make an example out of somebody for the, the other way. You, know, you hard. you punish them really hard so that everybody else sees and goes, whoa, I don't want to do that. He says, no, he, God saved him as an example that he'll save anybody because he's the worst or the chief of sinners. Now, Paul's not boasting in his attainments. What Paul is boasting is he's boasting in the Lord. He's boasting in God's grace and the work of God's grace. And in John Stott, uh, as always is helpful here, John Stott says the following. He says, no, Paul is not boasting He has reasons quite other than exhibitionism for drawing attention to himself. He mentions his teaching first and then goes on to supply two objective evidences of the genuineness of his teaching, namely the life he lived and the sufferings that he endured. He goes on and says, indeed, these are good, though not infallible general tests of a person's sincerity and even of the truth or falsehood of his system. Is he so convinced of his position that he both practices what he preaches and is prepared to suffer for it? It's one thing to hold a doctrine. It's another thing entirely to live in, in, in a way that's in line with it, to practice what you preach, as we say. And it's even something else entirely to be willing to suffer for it, to suffer persecution for it for holding to that doctrine and to living it out. And Paul is telling Timothy, unlike these false teachers, you remember how I live and how I teach. You know, you see the price I paid for the things that I teach. Paul wasn't getting rich. Paul was any, Paul had almost nothing except the sufferings he had for the gospel in this life. And so for all the you know, for all the things to brag about, the sufferings and persecution certainly wouldn't be high on anybody's list. In this room, would they? It wouldn't be high on my list. I don't walk around talking about, I don't think I suffer that much. But if I did, I don't think I'd be bragging about it too much. But in some ways, think about the way Paul viewed these things. Paul, in a strange way, but a right way, Paul viewed his sufferings, as well as his life, as his qualifications for ministry. He viewed them in a strange way as the seal of approval on the truth of the gospel that he preached. How different is Paul in that regard from many who preach the gospel in the ministry today? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll leave you to read that whole chapter on your own maybe this afternoon, but I'll read part of it. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 29, what Paul is doing here in that that book, he's contrasting his own life and ministry as an apostle with these people that called themselves, for lack of a better word, uh, you can translate it super apostles. In other words, you had men running around, Uh, kind of following after Paul claiming to be even greater than Paul and undermining his work in the gospel and they had all kinds of supposed qualifications and even I believe they even had letters from somebody commending them you know they had to wave a piece of paper around in front of the people to hear them Paul didn't do that Paul didn't need to do that but here's what Paul says in in distinction from them he says here's what my life is like in ministry he says um, oh, I lost track of it oh he says Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That means he's being whipped. Like he's being beaten to a pulp. Um, Three times, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Paul has a running tally here going. Uh, Three times I was shipwrecked. I don't know about you, but if I got shipwrecked once, that would be the last time I'd go on a boat. (laughs) If I was on a boat and saw Paul coming, I'd get off. You know, three, three times I was shipwrecked. We know about one of them in the book of Acts. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. A lot of danger there. I keep waiting to hear Will Robinson's name come up. Uh, Toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. After all that, what does he bring up? His anxiety for the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul boasted about the things that displayed his weakness, that the power of his ministry might be known to everybody who was part of it, that it was of God and not of Paul. Paul wasn't trying to impress anyone. How different he is from many of us today in the ministry. And all of that he willingly endured for the sake of the gospel of Christ, for the salvation of sinners, for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so nobody, certainly not Timothy, could question Paul's motives They couldn't question his sincerity in the work of ministry. Um, And in some ways, if you think about it, just maybe difficulties and afflictions uh, in life and ministry aren't always bad signs after all. Paul actually boasted in them and saw them in some ways as a good thing. Well, that leads us to the second thing in our text in verse 12. And the second thing, maybe the main thing I think that Paul is trying to fix our attention on in this passage. And that is the price of godliness. The price of of godliness. Look at verse 12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, will be persecuted. Now, you know, when, when you're reading verses 10 to 11, it's all fine and good, right? It's all very interesting, especially in our day. We are so far removed from Paul's day. We read of all his sufferings, and we, maybe we think to ourselves, well, oh, it's very interesting that Paul had all these things happen to him. This ship, he sounds like he had a very rough time. And of course, what does he leave out? What hadn't happened yet? Paul was beheaded in Rome under the reign of Caesar Nero for preaching the gospel. Paul was willing to suffer all the way to the point of death, as we're going to read later on in 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 4. It's all rather safe and interesting until we get to this point in verse 12. You know, None of us mind so much. It doesn't really bother us so much if Paul boasts of his own sufferings for the name of Christ Jesus. But Paul doesn't stop there. If you think about it, maybe some of us sitting here are like, I wish Paul had stopped there. I wish Paul had just stopped at verse 11 and, and gone on. But here, what is Paul saying? Paul is admonishing us who believe today, and especially pastors, that this has application to us too. That this is relevant to us in our own lives and ministries, he, he doesn't just say that Timothy will suffer persecution. That's implied. All through the letter, Paul says, endure, endure suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He doesn't even just say all godly ministers, although he implies it, that all godly ministers will suffer persecution, uh, which although that's true. He goes so far as to say that little word, then there's the rub, The word all. All. All sincere believers, not just a select few. All sincere believers who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what Paul teaches us here in verse 12. Now the the word desire there, it's it's a fine way to put it, but the word desire there, it conveys more than just a wishful thinking. It's not just you know, I'd really like to be godly in Christ Jesus, it's, it's an act, it involves an act of the will. This is What this word describes here is not wishful thinking, that kind of desire, but it's the, the kind of desire that is a settled disposition, a determination of the will uh, to live godly in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's as if he's saying, everybody who has made up his or her mind to live a godly life and following Christ will suffer persecution. That's what he is really saying here, what he is, is getting at. It kind of reminds me of the old classic hymn. We didn't sing it this morning, but the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. There's a price for following Christ, and he has told himself as much uh, in the New Testament and the Gospels as well. Um, there is, uh, if you think about it, have, have you ever experienced that in your own life? Have you ever experienced any kind of persecution or opposition for living in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ? Has your determination to follow Jesus Christ sincerely, even if imperfectly, none of us here follow Christ perfectly. Has it ever come with a price? I'm sure it has if you think back up, but you may never have been beaten, shipwrecked, or stoned. But has it come with a price, the fact that you follow Christ? Jesus Christ, has it ever cost you anything? It has ever cost you friends? Ever cost you a job? Ever cost you mockery? Any such thing? I'm sure it has in many ways. It always will in one way or another. You may not be persecuted violently, or maybe you will. You might not ever see things the way that Paul did, the things that Paul suffered. You know, many many of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world in various places of the world... Are suffering some of these exact same things that Paul mentions in our text. They are cut off from their family. They are disowned by their families in many places. In many places, they are brutally tortured and killed, all for confessing the name of Jesus Christ. This is not just some old 2,000 year old first century New Testament Bible days kind of stuff. This kind of stuff happens now to your brothers and sisters all over the world. Now, why is that? Why, why in the world does that happen? I've always thought to myself, it, in some ways it makes no sense. Why does the world persecute Christians? You know, if, I, I always think of it, if they really don't believe God exists, Rob mentioned Proverbs 14.1 or Psalm 14.1 rather, the fool says in his heart, and it's really shorter than that in, in the Hebrew, it's the fool says in his heart, no God. Like, no, he doesn't exist. There's no God. I don't believe there's a God. If you really believe there's no God, why do you bother the ones who do? Why do you care how they live? Why do you care what they think? If someone, you know, I often say, I don't not often, but I've said it before. Nobody persecutes people who believe in the tooth fairy. Kids, cover your ears. You know, uh, it, nobody, nobody persecutes those who believe in make-believe things. If anything, they should feel sorry for you. If they really don't believe God exists, they should, oh, they should say, oh, those poor Christians, look at them wasting their lives, not living for today, not accumulating as much wealth as, wealth as they can, not living for the, the pleasure of the moment. Oh, I feel sorry for them. I'm glad I'm not one of them. But it's not what they do, is it? They can't bear the existence of genuine Christians. They will not stand for it in many ways. And why is that? It's because the world hates Christ. And because the world hates the Lord Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be too surprised if those of us who are seeking to follow him receive some of that hatred as well. Remember the words of the risen Christ to to Saul of Tarsus before his conversion on the road to Damascus when he fell off that high horse, literally and physically, right? And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, and this includes it. He could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Now, he implied that, but he said a lot more than that. He said, why are you persecuting me? Who was Paul actually hating? Who was Paul actually trying to destroy? Who was Paul actually seeking to persecute? Christ himself. He hated Christians because at the time he hated Christ until Christ saved him. The world hates Christ, or so the world hates anybody, even with the smallest beginnings of a likeness and resemblance to Jesus Christ. And Jesus told us this ahead of time, didn't he? John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, Jesus Christ says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also do what? Persecute you. Careful who you follow, right? If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will Not might, not maybe, not once in a blue moon. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. Why? Because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know God. Now think about that. Many of the people that that persecuted Christ and his, his disciples, his apostles, they certainly claimed to know the one who sent Christ, didn't they? They claimed to be followers of Yahweh and believers in the one true and living God, but they hated Christ. And they really didn't know God at all. Reminds me of James chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Remember that the saying of Christ, you can't serve God in money. You can't be friends of God and friends of the world too. It's one or the other. The love and praise of the world in many ways is a bad sign for a believer. And yet how many of us who profess the name of Christ seem to seek after the praise and acceptance of the world. We just want to fit in. But isn't that precisely what Paul tells us we can't do? You know, what's the old saying? It's the nail that sticks out that gets the hammer. Well, none of us want to be the nail that sticks out. But if you're following Christ, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. And the hammer is going to come once in a while. Paul says we cannot just seek to fit in. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. After telling all these truths about the gospel of Christ and our salvation in chapters 1 through 11, here's how he he kind of starts to give the application. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that is, by the things I've just told you in the first 11 chapters about the mercies of God in Christ, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, not just your emotions, not just your mind, not just your happy thoughts, present your bodies As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your um, reasonable service. Either way, you want to look at that. And then he says this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the one leads to the other. Uh, When he tells us to, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as our spiritual worship. In other words, worship is more than just what we do on Sundays. In your everyday life, it's both. It's not one or the other. But how you live your life is also, in addition to this, on the Lord's Day, an act of worship and gratitude. And how do you do that? By not being conformed to the world. And how do you do that? by by the renewal of your mind to discern God's will how do you get your mind renewed by the scriptures do you know what you need to do in order to be conformed to the world what do you think you need to do to be conformed to the world turn on the tv or i was going to say nothing but that that probably doesn't help either you don't really need to do much of anything to conform to the world The pressures of the world around you will do the work for you. Just drift along and go with the flow. Keep your head down. Whatever you do, don't be a testimony in your words and your life to the truth of God and the gospel. And you will be, over time, conforming and being conformed to the world. But Paul says you can't do that. Not conforming to the world, but being transformed by the grace and power of God through the renewal of our minds according to his word is what we must do. That is how we live a life that's holy and pleasing To God, How overwhelming is the pressure to conform to the world in our day? And it really has always been that way, but we're the ones living in this day, and so we see it and feel it. Don't we see it in so many ways, in so many different areas of life? I just think of a few examples. Think about the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ that we hold to in God's word, that the Lord Jesus, as he tells us, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, If you hold to that and hold that forth to others, it will raise the ire and the hatred not only of the world, but also the hatred of some within the visible church. It's not just the people out there that persecuted uh, the prophets. If we hold to, for example, the Bible's teaching on sexuality, marriage, and family, the world will not stand for it as you can tell if you're paying attention to the news in our day. They will bring every manner of pressure and coercion to conform us in some way to their views on things and their perversions. Churches in recent days have been vandalized over holding to the truth on this. issue. In fact, one of those was in San Diego. I think it was in the past month was, was vandalized for that exact reason. Is it any wonder that so many in the church today even in Reformed churches, cave into the pressure on these and a great many other things. And why is that? I think what Paul says in our text is the reason why that is. Conforming to the world is often done, I believe, to escape the persecution that would come our way otherwise. We don't want to be the nail that sticks out and gets the hammer, and so what do we do? We keep our heads down, and we just go along with the world. And what it says and in what it does on its way to perdition. And this is often done, in my opinion, in the name of being winsome. It's often done in the name of evangelism and outreach. Oh, well, we have to be nice. We have to make them feel happy and welcome by welcoming them, welcoming them in their sins and not being judgmental towards them, not, not teaching them about repentance and those kinds of things. As if the solution for the church were somehow to resemble the world as much as possible in order to gain a hearing for the message, as if the holiness of God and the certainty of his just judgment is irrelevant. That's not evangelism. Conforming to the world is not going to help anyone come to Christ for salvation. Many professing believers have been tempted to adopt a kind of, I don't know what to call it, but I'll just call it what I think I want to call it, kind of a hyper-pietistic view of the Christian faith in life. Keep your Christianity on the reservation. Keep your Christianity all about your own inner emotions and feelings and experiences and not about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Christ. I think that's the plague upon the church in our day, that mindset. As long as the claims and commands of Christ do not in any way interfere with or openly contradict the prevailing powers that be in our land, our version of Christianity will be tolerated. But again, it has to be kept on the reservation where persecution is sure to come. You know, think about these uh, past couple years or so during the pandemic. Think about the lockdowns and some of the things that were done to churches during the pandemic. In some cases, I can think of a few notable cases, pastors, not myself, thankfully, but pastors were imprisoned just for trying to keep their churches open and having their people be able to meet. Thrown in prison, charged with all kinds of things that were nonsense. I can think of one church in Canada that was literally barricaded by the authorities. They didn't just arrest the pastor. They built a chain link fence around the church and locked it. And when people tried to get in anyway, they brought, I want to say it was over 100 police officers and surrounded it. As if they're the problem in society, just trying to worship God according to Christ's command. I remember people, even in form circles, arguing for this very thing. Oh no, keep it closed. It's the winsome, loving thing to do. And I would say things like, you know, and sometimes for a small time, yes, but how do you have the Lord's Supper virtually? You can't. Oh, you might try to do it, but it won't be the Lord's Supper you're having. Everybody on their own in their own homes by themselves is not the Lord's Supper. It's not the way that Christ ordained it. Is it? The gathered church is the church. The church isn't just you, me, and everybody else off in our own corner with our own inner emotional experiences and feelings. It is gathering in obedience to Christ, worshiping him, and seeking to conform our lives more and more to the commands of Christ and his life. Brothers and sisters, are we trying to be transformed by the grace of God through the renewing of our minds? Are you spending time in the Word of God both in private reading and study as well as in diligently attending upon the preaching and teaching of God in the church? And do we do these things with the goal and purpose of our lives actually being changed to the glory of Christ? May God work in you and me by his Holy Spirit that you and and me might sincerely desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't, doesn't just say... Hold the wrong opinions, and you'll be persecuted. He says, "All who desire or will to live godly in Christ Jesus, that's the rub. That's the part the world hates the most. But do we desire to do that? Is it Have we have the settled disposition in our minds and hearts that we are going to seek to follow after Christ? That is what we should do, is what we must do as believers. Well, last but not least, Paul reminds us of one last third thing, and that is the end or outcome of the way of life of the false teachers, those men who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, as he says earlier in the chapter. Here he reminds us of the reward of the reprobate, those who have been hardened of heart and turned away from repentance and faith. Look at verse 12 and 13. Once again, we're going to focus on verse 13. though. he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then he says... While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, when he says imposters there, it could also be translated. It might sound strange to our ears. It it could be translated magicians or, or that kind of a thing, conjurers. And I think the reason for that is, remember, in the previous passage, you talked about Jonathan Jambres who opposed Moses. And what did they think they were? The court magicians of Pharaoh who tried to fake the same miracles that Moses did. I think he's picking up on the same idea. But notice the contrast that Paul paints here. He's contrasting two groups. The first is those who desire to live godly in Christ. And what will happen to them? What will happen to us? Persecution in some ways. Verse 12. But what's the opposite of that? That's what he's doing. He's giving us two sides of of a coin, so to speak, or two equal and opposite things. What's the opposite of desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus? He tells you in verse 13, evil people and imposters. Uh, And he he says going on, and that word could be literally progressing. So they're progressing. The only growth that they have is worse and worse, from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If we understand this rightly, that should be a frightening thought. You should think, man, please don't ever let that be me. Which one would you pick if you had the choice? At first blush, it might sound easy. Well, I'd rather not be persecuted. I don't know about you. I really don't want to suffer much. You know, if there's any persecution, I'd like to not be a part of it. Thank you very much. Maybe you feel the same way. Paul says you can either suffer for godliness, suffer persecution, or you can go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Which one is worse? The latter, isn't it? You might escape the momentary afflictions and persecutions of this life by not pursuing godliness, but at what cost? It's a much greater cost than any persecution you might have. Paul paints a picture. You know, we often talk about the, the slippery slope. This is a, the worst kind of slippery slope, a kind of a downward cycle of degradation and depravity and deception. He's talking about their hearts becoming more and more hardened to the truth and ways of God, even hardened at the got to the gospel. You know, think about this. You know, perhaps such people comfort themselves with the idle notion that, well, you know, I'm just going to stray this this far. I'm only going to compromise this much. What does Paul say? No, once you start, it just keeps on going. There will be a next thing, and the next thing after that, and the next thing after that. They'll stray further and further and further from the truth, um, anything that's necessary for them to escape suffering and persecution. And they tell themselves, I think, well, you know, I can always turn back later. I'm just doing this for the time being to get by, and I'll, you know, at some time, maybe on my deathbed, I'll turn it around, and I'll profess the truth and all these things. Now think about that, much like the person who seeks to put off repentance and coming to Christ by faith for salvation until their deathbed. But what's the problem with that? It's a couple problems at least. One, almost none of us know when our deathbed will be. We always assume, oh, I'll I'll live until I'm 95 or whatever it is. I'll have plenty of advance notice. None of us know, young or old. None of us really know when our deathbed is. But on top of that, and maybe worse than that, what does the Bible say about the hardness of heart that comes along with sin? It says, do not let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13. Your heart becomes harder and harder and harder the more you live the way these false teachers did, the more you live the way these false converts did. And the harder your heart gets, the harder it is to ever repent and turn back to Christ by faith at all. In some ways it's really impossible. That's why Paul at the end of the previous chapter. Talks about uh, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses. And escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him to do his will. Only God can grant repentance in the first place. But some people make it harder and harder. By hardening their hearts. By sin and sin. And unbelief and not holding to the truth of God. So you and I should never become envious of the prosperity or lack of persecution, for that matter, of the wicked. We should never be envious of of the wicked. For their hardening of heart and certainly their end is far worse than any momentary light, tribulation or persecution that you and I might be called upon to endure for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe Paul would say that exact thing. Even knowing his death was coming under under Caesar, under Caesar Nero in Rome. When he wrote this letter, I think Paul Paul knew exactly what, what, is, what his end was going to be. And, and it was going to be relatively soon. And Paul still said these words to Timothy that we look at in our text. May God work in us what's well-pleasing in his sight by his Holy Spirit that you and I who believe might all have a growing desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus so that the truth of the gospel might be vindicated and that Jesus Christ might be pleased and glorified in you and me.